Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to find daily joy, peace, and contentment. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide pathways for improving emotional and mental well-being. However, none of the education and information should be taken as direct therapeutic suggestion or advice. In other words, your medical doctor or mental health professional is your best bet if you have specific concerns. Also on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds and interests, and they may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing from the world's leading experts in mental well-being. We're grateful that you're here and hope that the information discussed helps you on your journey. Welcome to the show. All right, Dr. Ben Rain, welcome to the podcast, dude. It's we we've been trying to do this for far too long, but we're here. We made it. So, welcome, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we could finally get it on the calendar. Absolutely. So, the first question that I'm going to throw to you, a bit of a softball, but I'm curious. I think you've talked about this in the past, but you'll have to uh you'll have to remind me if I'm I'm correct on this. So, the first question I have for you is you are a neuroscientist and your name is Ben Rain and you shorten it sometimes as B Rain or if people can put two and two together, brain. And it makes me think. So, as a psychologist, you know, I'm I'm very well aware of the studies on a concept that is referred to as implicit egotism. Now, I okay, well, let me let me take a step back and say that I don't like the way that that word or char- it's characterized in a way <laughs> that I don't like. But if anybody wants to know, implicit egotism is basically this idea that people will prefer to associate with things that remind them of themselves. So there's a disproportionate amount of dentists that are named Dennis or Denise. And so I'm curious... For you, having kind of B-Rain or brain as kind of like your initials and you're a neuroscientist, do you think that factored whatsoever into you pursuing this career or is it just uh, happened to be coincidental? Yeah, definitely coincidental. I, uh, it's funny because when I published my first research paper, when you publish papers, your name is automatically abbreviated and you can choose whether you have first and middle name or um, so it's like my middle name's Aaron. So it'd be B A. And my last name, um, which actually secretly my last name is actually pronounced Ryan, but I go with Rain. Oh. I let people say it because it's like I'm glad you. Cor- like I'm Rain. glad you corrected me, but I, I want to say Rain because now it's Brain, right? <laughs> yeah, we exactly. We can keep the secret going. It's it can be Rain, but um, yeah. So I I published my first paper as B A Ryan, and I looked at it and I was like B A, and I was like an undergrad at the time, and I had a bachelor. I was getting a bachelor's of science, a BS degree, and a new alternative was bachelor's of arts, B A, and I was like, if I publish as B A. People are going to think I have a bachelor of arts, not a bachelor of science. Right. So I made this stupid decision to omit my middle initial and just do B Ryan. And then I published my first neuroscience paper and it was like brain. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so I didn't actually realize I didn't put it together until that happened. Uh, and then when I got on social media, it occurred to me that it would be a great sort of you know, handle a great nickname. I suppose Dr. Brain. Yes. So, um, oh, yeah. So, but it is a great afternoon. It is. No, that's, that, that's really funny. You know, I find it funny just, you know, as an academic that, uh, at, at first you're like, Oh, don't want them to think I have one of those crazy bachelor of arts. Those <laughs> BAs. We are, we are BS people, which is always kind of funny in and of itself when you, when you kind of think about what those initials sometimes can stand for. Uh, but no, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's awesome. No, I, I, I thought about that. Um, and yeah, I know like if anybody's kind of, you know, two, 
tuning in now, if you go on to Instagram, TikTok, you know, it's Dr. Brain. Um, I'm glad to, to know that's not how it's pronounced, uh, even though I'm going to con- just kind of continue that one on just because I love it so much. Uh, but oh, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I, I read those studies, you know, on implicit egotism kind of back in the day. You know, basically, it sounds like a lot of it just comes down to it, it happens to be coincidence. It's just kind of funny that a lot of dentists name are named Dennis or Denise. Uh, and so I was like, oh, it'll be a fun little softball just to throw it out there and see if that was that was the uh, the thing that <laughs> no, got you there. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Uh, no one's ever asked me that, actually. People just accept, oh, Dr. Brain. That's no it. Oh, no, that's it. No, that's great. I, I want to start off with a uh, and more of my real questions um, and talking about kind of this this concept related to stress in the field of academia. So you've been someone who's been brought up in academia. You're obviously, you know, a PhD in, in, in neuroscience. You're working at Stanford. And so uh, what people may or may not realize is that the academic world can be extremely stressful um, just with the amount of time, the amount of effort. Uh, a lot of people, it's very competitive. There's just a lot about that landscape that can really impact stress and mental health. And obviously for a lot of our Hanu listeners and, and those who are tuning in, uh, stress and managing their mental health is a high priority for them. So I'm just curious for you, like how do you both kind of as you were growing up in academia and school, but also as a postdoctoral fellow and working kind of now as a neuroscientist at Stanford, how do you keep yourself sane? Um, and how do you continue to like hard charge and do what you do, but manage the stress load that's involved? Yes. Yeah, so I have sort of three parts to this answer. Um, first off, I've been fortunate to kind of avoid a lot of the typical peril that people face in, in, any field of study, you know, or hard work where you have these late nights and you're, you know, you're not sleeping. And I have friends who I, when I was in college, they were attending other schools and they'd be like, man, I pulled three all nighters in a row studying. And I'm just like, I've never worked past like 7 PM. I've never stayed up late to, you know, to finish my work. I've always like like never in your academic career. Like you've never like done like late night studies, pulled all nighters. I've never pulled an all-nighter once in my life. Wow, that's, yeah. that dude, kudos to you, man. I, I I wish I could say the same, but like in when I was in college, uh, less in grad school, but when I was doing my bachelor's degree, I was like the world's worst procrastinator. And I always like would tell myself, you know, I, I, I'm one of those people who work best under pressure. And I bought into this idea that I could cram and, you know, do well. And I might do well, but then retaining any of the information, as you know, it's like not good. Um, so no kudos to you for not having done that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, sleep has always been really important to me and um and I guess up until the last couple of years, I've been very good at setting my personal boundaries as far as where work can invade. And so for all through all through undergrad, um you know, and I don't know, I did I did just sort of develop systems for organization uh, of time management and getting work done. I mean, my my approach to undergrad was, you know, you'd you'd show up to the class at the beginning of the semester and they would give you the syllabus. And you would see the layout. If they were a good professor, they would lay out like, you know, week four, you have this assignment due. Week seven, you have this assignment due. And so you'd have an idea of where your, where your timing is going to fall, where your hard work is going to land. And so I would actually start the semester immediately working on projects that were due like halfway or to the end of the course. So I would get like an eight week uh, advance sort of start on the, on the work. And I would usually submit my projects 
you know, four to six weeks early or something like that. Just especially if, if I could, you know, if studious I how, individual like use. <laughs> do do, are you, are you teaching any classes right now? It's by, I, I, cause I'm assuming that like for, for you, like you're like one of those ideal students that like for me, like I, I'm, uh, I, I teach adjuncts um, at, at a couple of universities and I'm always like, Oh, the ones who turn it in three or four weeks early. I'm like, I love you because I can get started on this. I don't have everything kind of just crammed and jammed at, at, at once. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, you, you sound like a very studious student. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope, I hope my professors appreciated that as well. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, in undergrad, I learned to manage my time. And 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 I think another key thing is, you know, when you're not pulling all-nighters, you're re- retaining your sleep habits. That goes a long way toward your productivity the following day, you know. So if you spend up all, you stay up all night, you're going to do terrible the next day. You're probably going to have maybe 10% of the normal productivity output you would have. So I always just kind of kept those boundaries. I, I exercise a lot more in undergrad than I do now. So that helped too. Um, but my relationship with stress shifted a bit when I got to my PhD, naturally. PhD is a bit harder. And what's funny is I actually was working in a lab that studied stress. And there was this paper that the lab had published in rats. So it's not humans, but it's in rats. And, it, and I took it to heart uh, nonetheless. So they found that when they stressed rats for a short period, like one or two days, the function of the prefrontal cortex, this brain area that's involved in like high level cognition and social cognition and planning and executive functions, the function of the prefrontal cortex actually increased slightly. Um, And what that actually looked like molecularly was that there was increased expression of these specific receptors um, for a neurotransmitter called glutamate. So when you have more glutamate transmit uh, receptors, then the cells can activate the, each other more strongly. There's like sort of like this short-term form of long-term potentiation that happens. But then what happened was after more time of being under stress, when the rats got out to like seven, 14 days, those receptors started leaving the cells. They started, well, actually, they started leaving the cell membrane. So the cells became less effective at communicating with one another. And the overall function of the prefrontal cortex was diminished and the mice or the rats actually became worse at like memory tasks and like recognition tasks. And so it made me realize this kind of interesting dynamic of stress that if everything I just said is true in humans as well, which I would find it to be when you have a short term stress, you may actually become like more effective, not necessarily, but like in a short term stress, you know, you get that like kind of like jolt, like, like you said, procrastination, you're more effective when the pressure's on, right? You're like, all right, I got to do this right now. I have two days. Let me feel terrible for two days, but I'm going to get this done. Versus when you have seven, 14 days, you know, 21 days of straight stress, eventually it wears on you and you start to function at a poorer level. And I've definitely experienced that anecdotally uh, as a human being and not as a rat. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I just, I've developed this, this kind of idea that stress is unavoidable, but if you can prevent it from lasting for long periods, you're going to be benefiting yourself. So like whatever it takes, you know, don't, don't work three weekends straight, you know, take a break. Um, just things like that, like giving myself time off and and just trying to relish that time off and really use it. And instead of, uh, you know, taking, leaving the lab, but thinking about all the stuff I had to do, which is admittedly something I struggle with a lot. Sure. Yeah. You know, it speaks to this idea. So many people, I think, are demonizing the concept of stress. Uh, They hear stress and they immediately think of a negative connotation. Stress equals, and then you know, fill in the blank, normally something bad. Uh, It's seen as this nefarious thing that we have to get rid of. 
When indeed we know that stress is an inherent warning signaling system, like stress is there as a mechanism to warn us and to help us self-preserve. And we can actually utilize stress to our benefit. Um, so I love kind of the, the the studies that you're mentioning there and kind of working in that lab, you know, within sports psychology, but also uh, just in performance psychology in general, we know that there is what's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve or the Yerkes-Dodson law, which is this idea that as stress increases, it can actually enhance performance up to a certain point. And then after that tipping point, when you get to the, you know, kind of so-called proverbial line in the sand, we see kind of a declination in overall performance. And I think that's true. The short-term stressors can actually help us to perform. They can engage us. If we didn't have stress, we'd probably just be pretty lazy individuals that really didn't get a lot done. But it's kind of, there is that tipping point that when stress becomes longstanding, it becomes chronic, it's going to impact us physiologically, you know, socially, psychologically, uh, we have to be aware of that. And so I'm curious for you, like you're in kind of, uh, you're working at a top tier academic institution that is that is Stanford right now. I can only imagine um, that, you know, there's a lot of time pressure, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you're involved in a lot of things. So when you had to, if you have to kind of boil it down to maybe even your personal experience, or I would say to kind of what you've seen kind of in the literature, both in the, you know, neuroscientific literature, or just kind of any literature in general, what are kind of your go-to mechanisms for stress relief, um, uh, stress mitigation? Uh, what, what, what is it that you've found both in the literature and then just personally kind of helps you, especially working in kind of a hard-charging position in academic university like you are in right now? Yeah, exercise is, I mean, first off, laying the foundation with sufficient sleep. I always aim for eight hours a night uncompromisingly. I mean, I go to bed at, if it's 11 o'clock and I'm not in bed, it doesn't matter if it's a Friday, Saturday night, I'm out with friends. I'm like, okay, I got to get home, got to get to bed. And it's, that's something very important to me. So I always get enough sleep. Um, that's, that's critical. So I think for anyone listening, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're having certain nights where you're compromising your sleep for other things, you know, just try to get more into a steady rhythm of getting, of getting eight, eight hours of sleep, seven hours of sleep, nine hours of sleep, whatever you can do, whatever feels good. Um, but then beyond that, of course, there are times, often times when the sleep alone is not sufficient, laying down exercise, regular exercise on top of that helps. Um, so these are just simple, you know, habits and, and strategies to have a healthy self. But then when the actual stress occurs, I'm very prone to sort of like spiraling. And, and as you mentioned, I have a lot of things going on. I have the Stanford role. I do science communication, you know, I do podcasts and things like this. I have a lot of different like extracurriculars and I like to, I, I'm a yes man. I like to say yes to things and take them on. And then what ends up happening is I have, you know, dozens of projects kind of spiraling in my head and I can literally kind of like spiral out of control where suddenly I'm like losing control of like what to do. And, and it's like, I get really overwhelmed in those moments. And in those moments, when that happens, I find that either some sort of like meditation or, or yoga um, or like biofeedback, something like that, just to like ground myself and kind of like send all those thoughts flying away. Those, those habits or those um, practices are really effective or in more extreme situations, um, just going out for a run that, that like, it's unbelievable how immediately that will relieve all of my stress and I'll come back and I'll feel completely refocused and, and then I'll be, I'll feel great. I'm like, wow, okay. I went for a run. You know, it's like last time I remembered I was sitting here freaking out and super stressed. And then all of a sudden I just exercise. How good, you know, it's, it, it really, uh, it really does a lot for mood. And, um, 
I think those two are really the only things that have like really stepped in and, and, uh, and sort of saved the day for me in those tough times. I don't know. Do you have any, any others? Yeah, no, no. I, I think what you mentioned is foundational, right? So we, we got to think about kind of the pillars of what we see as mental health. I mean, the one, number one that you mentioned, it is, uh, you cannot convince me otherwise that exercise is not one of the most, if not the most important thing for mental well-being. I mean, the the research in the literature is so clear and so evident, and I feel like it's every single day I'm looking at new publications that are coming out about the efficacy of exercise for mental well-being. So I love that that's a non-negotiable sleep also, too, is like you can have everything in life in uh, lined up in terms of behavioral habits, but if sleep is still crappy, like your mental well-being and your physical well-being are going to suffer. You're going to leave a lot on the table. So I love that as a non-negotiable. And then I love these practices about centering and centering present moment awareness, whether it's through the breath with biofeedback and using data as a guide in terms of nervous system functioning or doing something like meditation or yoga nidra, non-sleep deep rest. These are amazing approaches that I, I we teach at Hanu as foundational skills to learn how to become more accepting and open to the present moment instead of trying to just simply stuff things away. You know, a lot of times in pop psychology, we see this notion of just positive thinking, just replace bad thoughts with good thoughts. Turns out that it's great in theory. It's a good concept or conceptual idea. But in practice, what we see is that a lot of times that just ends up being active avoidance. People are like, I just want to avoid the bad thought, avoid the experience, avoid the emotion or the feeling. Whereas if we take more of an openness and acceptance of kind of that experience of that feeling, we find that a lot of people just engage in uh, or have more uh, mood benefits or mood enhancing benefits. So no, I wouldn't necessarily add anything. You know, I think the only other thing that we talk about a lot at Hanu would just be like ensuring really good quality nutrition and what we're putting into our body. Because obviously when our mental health is struggling, when we're stressed, it's really easy just to kind of say, yeah, I need some comfort food right now. And I am, I always tell people I'm, I'm not one of those sticklers or dogmatic thinkers. That's like, no, like you could never kind of buy into that. Now, some days, like just go out with your friends and have a pizza and have a good time. Uh, but then other times too, just like make sure that the basis is like good quality nutrition and that you kind of, you're feeding your body and your brain with really high quality nutrients. So yeah, no, otherwise I think you, you, you nailed the foundations that we talk about here. So <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I totally agree with that as well about nutrition. Um, I, I was thinking it and I didn't say it because I was thinking, you know, when I'm in those moments of, of, you know, anxiety, it's not like going and eating a salad's going to save, you know, my emotions. Right, right, right. But it's exactly. one of those, it's one of those foundational, you know, like sleep, exercise, diet. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No, that's it, man. I, I want to switch gears now and talk about uh, one of the things that uh, I, I love following you for. And if anybody isn't aware yet, too, we didn't mention this uh, just yet, but uh, uh, Dr. Ben is a huge presence on social media, um, on, on TikTok, on Instagram. He's a very big presence. And what he's known for is is kind of a couple things. Number one, debunking a lot of bad science and bad scientific myths, which I want to I want to dive deep in here too in just a second. And the other is just providing really 
easy to understand, very comprehensible information regarding science that anybody can take in. Because what we know is being in the, the world of academia and science is that it's dense. Like there is a lot of information that's really difficult to understand. And I think what you do great here in this field, uh, Ben, is that you understand that not everybody has a PhD in neuroscience and will never have a PhD in neuroscience. And so therefore you want to take that beautiful information that's coming from research that's very practical and applicable and just make it understandable without compromising the science, which is the the key component here, right? So my, my first question about this is, what was the impetus for you getting started on social media? Tell me a little bit about that background and that story of what drew you to social media as a platform. Nothing, nothing at all drew me to social media. In fact, it was an accident. Yeah, I posted a video at the beginning of the pandemic on TikTok, the very beginning. And it was an instructional video on how to how to put on one of those masks. And because I knew how to use them and I went to the store and nobody knew how to use them. And I thought, oh, you know, my friends and family are probably going to want to, you know, this could maybe benefit someone. So I filmed myself on TikTok, posted it to download it. And then because the only way to download videos on TikTok, a terrible platform, is to uh, is to post and uh, to post it, upload it, and then you can download it. And uh, and then I posted it on my Facebook, my Instagram and was like, hey, friends and family, here you go. And I checked back a couple of days later, you know, just open TikTok to scroll around. And my video had been basically going viral and had a couple thousand, a couple hundred thousand views at that point. That video ended up getting uh, 1.6 million views. And people started Whoa. asking me more questions about about masks and about COVID. And I was just like, not my space. I was just here to share some information that might be useful. But like, you know, I made, I made, I made one other video about masks showing, you know, that like in a hospital that used them versus a hospital that didn't. They had fewer infections. And I was like, hey, just wear it, you know. And then... Of course, I shifted into neuroscience and that's kind of where it all started. And I started asking people, what kind of questions do you have about the brain? And the more I used it, especially stemming from that experience with the mask video, I realized like this is an extremely powerful tool for public messaging. And like my intent was not to show 1.6 million people how to use a mask. But at that time in, in humanity and in American history, when the pandemic had set, like it or not, I did help. I did provide some useful instruction to 1.6 million people. And it was just, it struck me as just so powerful. And I just, especially as I used it more and I started seeing people commenting and I, I got a sense for the pub, the general public's sort of lack of grasp on these complex neuroscience topics. I realized that there was a true need for something like this to, to really provide clarity. And so I just got more and more into it. And of course it was fun and exciting and a little bit addictive and so, um, yeah, and then here I am, I don't know, three years later now, but I, I love what I do. And, and of course, there's an endless supply of misinformation um, for me to debunk. <laughs> right, sadly. right. Now, that, that's, yeah, sadly, sadly. That's, that's great, though. I didn't realize that background in that story, Ben. That's really, really cool to hear that it's, it's kind of just happenstance. So you threw something out there, the next thing you know, boom, viral, which is, uh, which is so intriguing to me. But what's great about it, like you see, I've seen a real shift in probably the last five to 10 years in people in the field of academia and people like you, scientists, who are putting out information out there that uh, is 
is understandable. It's relatable. It's practical. Um, and let's just be honest, it's entertaining. And that's the other thing that's like huge. Um, you need it to be somewhat entertaining in order for it to, to continue to multiply and go viral. Um, I, I've seen that, uh, you know, here with the, with the advent of a lot of these social media outlets with podcasting, you know, with kind of videos on YouTube. And it's pretty incredible to see just the receptivity because I feel like back in the day, if you would have asked someone 10, 15 years ago, let's start putting scientists on podcasts. Let's put them on social media and have them, uh, you know, kind of do what they're doing now. I'm not so sure there would have been a lot of openness and receptivity to it from maybe those who are kind of coordinating those platforms. But what we're finding is that people, like actual people, like they're really buying into this stuff. They like it. Like they want more and more of it. And there's almost like there's this increased appreciation for science. Like, do you think that's always been there, Ben? Like everybody like has probably had that natural yearning for this stuff and just hasn't had access to it unless they were in an academic setting. Or do you think there's something else that's the catalyst or driver there? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something interesting there about scientists becoming more accessible and so therefore science becoming more accessible. And I think people, the the general public enjoys learning things when they feel confident that the information they're getting is accurate. You know, I think that is very satisfying when it's, it's a very different story hearing about neuroscience from, you know, let's just say me versus from, you know, some random website on the internet. And you're like, this sounds convincing, but how do I know if this is real or not? How do you know, there's that level of uncertainty can be uncomfortable psychologically, I think, you know, whether you're unsure if you can really incorporate this information into your perspective, perspective on life and, and neuroscience in the world. And so um, I think that accessibility goes a long way to the actual scientists and to the information that they can share. Uh, and then I think also the rise of TikTok sort of democratized megaphones in a way, you know, it's like suddenly anybody could become really popular. And I'm glad that some scientists were involved in that. And I think that um, those scientists who have had success have started to advocate for the use of these platforms within the scientific communities because scientists, you know, scientists are, are stubborn and busy and, and traditional. And so, a scientist isn't going to listen to an article, you know, they're not going to read an article about Charlie D'Amelio and be like, you know, I should really try this with science. No one's going to think like that. But if they hear, if they see a peer reviewed uh, a, a journal or a commentary in a peer reviewed scientific journal from a scientist talking about, Hey, social media can actually be really useful. I think that starts to sort of send a bit of a wave running through um, the field. And I think, you know, as we've seen more and more scientists become popular, more other scientists are starting to think, well, this could this could be useful for me. This could bring in grants. This could bring in more citations of my work as other scientists see my so my videos on, on social media. Um, and yeah. I have found that to be the case even. So, I mean, scientists are out there paying attention. It's just whether or not they they want to actually start talking. 
Yeah, it, it makes makes total sense. I think that though you have individuals like you and Huberman and other scientists who are putting out amazing information uh, that is bound in science um, is it has been vetted in science, and I think that kind of as um, you know our generations move forward and we're a lot more tech enabled, we're a lot more open and receptive uh, to receiving information in short bits. I think that's what most people want now is short bits, and obviously TikTok, Instagram reels. It's going to give you kind of that really high potency in a short amount of time. Most people are not going to sit down and, and review a peer-reviewed study in a, you know, in a, in a really nice, well peer-reviewed academic journal. Like they just don't have the time to do it, nor would they, would we want them necessarily to do it because how are we going to know that they're going to fully grasp that? I mean, these are very technical, scientifically rigorous writings. And so I like that we can provide this information and then also debunk a lot of just the BS that's out there in the health and wellness and scientific spaces, uh, just kind of, again, with these short clips that people can understand and then make use of it. Um, so I think that the, the zeitgeist, the climate is changing there. I think as we, as we continue to be more and more uh, maybe fused or enmeshed with technology, we're going to see um, that there's obviously going to be a lot more receptivity kind of in all um, all areas, including in the scientific community. So I appreciate kind of what you're doing there and what other scientists are doing there to really drive that forward. Uh, because uh, honestly, that's what's going to reach the masses. Like the, it's not, we're not going to reach the masses through peer reviewed journals. Like we need that obviously, but we need them to take that information and then to get it to the masses in very short clips that people understand. So I appreciate you doing that. Ben, I have, thank you. Yeah, yeah, man. I have a question that I'm going to put out there and you may have to think about it for a second. Um, it's a little bit putting you on the spot, but I'm very curious because you've done a lot of these debunking, you know, like science, health and wellness, um, type of videos or kind of what, whatever, well, it's been put out there on the interwebs. And so my question to you is, what do you think is the worst, like either health advice or like bad scientific myth that you've had to dispel in like all the videos you've done? And if multiple ones come to mind, I don't mind riffing on that. But is there any like just ones that stand out to you? Like, yeah, that was like really egregious and like so bad that I had to make a video about it. Yeah, as you've been talking, I've been flipping through the pages in my head of the different debunks I've done. Um, I think the worst one has to be this this TikToker created this video and she lives in, she appeared to have lived, she appears to live in Arizona. And she was saying that, you know, Arizona has some of the highest skin cancer rates in the country, but it's not because of the sun. It's because people in Arizona use more sunscreen. And so the sunscreen must be what's causing skin cancer and not the sun. And to me, that was just so dangerous because you know, sure. Have there been reports in the last couple of years that maybe some skin or some uh, sunscreens may contain carcinogens? Yes, of course. Is it possible that sunscreen can cause cancer? Anything can cause cancer. I'm not going to rule it out. Of course. Sure. But sure. the thing is, the reason that sunscreen exists in, and the reason that skin cancer happens most of the time is because the sun emits these UV rays that we know can induce DNA damage. And when your skin is exposed to UVB rays, DNA damage can occur. And then this can drive a pathological process, which induces, uh, you know, abnormal cell division, which can lead to cancer. And so it's very much known from cell cultures to humans that UV exposure can drive 
cancer progression and cancer development. And so I just feel like that framing of like the skin, the sunscreen, but not the skin, not the sun is causing skin cancer is really dangerous because, and the video was going viral, of course. And of, and of course, as a result of this, people are going to say, well, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that. You know, the sun is good for me. I'm not going to wear sunscreen. And then all of a sudden you have a million people in Arizona not wearing sunscreen anymore um, and exposing right. themselves to excessive amounts of sun. That that just felt like an immediate, like, this is going to change people's behavior in a way that could be dangerous to them. Yeah. But of course, there she are was many just making others a, as well. Was, she was just making a correlation um, that says like, oh, well, p- these people are putting on a ton of sunscreen. So therefore, that must be the catalyst of change that is causing cancer. Is that, is that basically like what the video was? Yeah. And then I forget exactly, but I think she went on to like point at some like horrible evidence that wasn't really evidence, but like a kind of a conspiracy saying like, look, you know, places that don't use sunscreen don't have as much skin cancer or something. It's like it's the the use of sunscreen is completely conflated with the excess of or the amount of sun exposure that occurs in that place. So it's impossible to disentangle the two. Um, But I forget there was some there was something that some argument that she made about why like the sun's good for you. And I think she said something, you know, the sun vibrates your skin at a certain frequency that's good for your brain and your hormones release or something like that, where I was like, okay, this is just complete bogus. Um, <laughs> right. So we start, we start talking about easier. like some of the like energetic shaking frequencies. And, you know, if she starts using the word chakras, then I, I start to get it. My, my, my eyebrow raises a little bit and I'm kind of like, okay, what are we, where are we going with this? So, you know, and I'm sorry to anyone if listening, if this is offensive, to, in my opinion, if anyone ever tells you that your cells or the molecules inside your cells are vibrating at a certain frequency and that's important for health, it's just our, our cells don't vibrate. Like that doesn't happen. Like nothing vibrates in our bodies. <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think anything in the, in the body, in the human body vibrates at any frequency. Yes, there are frequencies of different things, you know, certain like brain oscillations and things like that. But yes, your cells yes. do not vibrate. If they are vibrating, they would probably be dying. Uh, so just that is like a clear indication to me of this person is not sharing accurate information. Yeah. And I'm curious, Ben, like whenever you uh, provide any of these like debunking videos, uh, do you ever get anybody that let's say you made the video about, let's use this, this, this lady, for instance, like to reach back out to you to like have a conversation or communicate with you at all, or do they just kind of like stay quiet? Uh, I've always been curious about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're definitely treading into some dangerous territory when you start debunking videos, because especially if you're debunking a person who has a large following, their followers can just really start to come after you. And I've had it happen. I've had the followers come after me. I've had the people themselves come after me. I've had uh, this one guy, he he's this guy, he goes into grocery stores and he holds up like a can of beans and he's like, this is going to give you cancer and here's why. And he'll turn the ingredients label and like, he's, he's that guy. And I've debunked a couple of his videos. And he recently had one about psychedelics and I study psychedelics and I corrected his video and, and he got really mad and started sending his people after me and started, uh, making threats. And I eventually, I direct messaged him and I said, Hey, you know, I don't want any beef here. Like if you want to talk about this and, and and basically I was like, you know, you made a mistake in your video. I'm sorry if it was harsh. I was just, I'm doing my thing. And he got really upset about it. And he was like insisting that he was right. And I said, Hey, if you actually think that you're right, then how about we do a live stream? Let's discuss it. You could share your perspective. I'll share my perspective. Let's talk it out. You know, it can be completely, you know, friendly and nice. And, uh, and he just got more and more intense to eventually he was like, I can't remember exactly the threats, but he was making some pretty severe threats, sending me these like voice memos where he was yelling. And then he just blocked me. 
And it's like, you yeah. know, if, yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? But it, you can definitely end up in some dangerous, dangerous territory. Um, but in general, I mean, yeah, when you say anything on social media, people start coming after you. You, you can literally say something not controversial and people will be angry with you. So there will always be at least one person, usually a group of people who are upset by something that you say, which is unavoidable. And, you know, it, that's probably how it is in real life, too. When you're sitting in a group setting, talking, there's people who disagree with you, but they don't voice their their opinions and their dissent. But when you're on social media, everybody voices their dissent because it's, yes, it's social media. Exactly. And everyone's got the right to do so. Everybody's got the right to do so. But I feel like also everybody just I mean, and this is probably a natural part of just the human experience is everybody thinks they're right, or at least deep down, they want to be right, because nobody wants to be wrong, because therefore that puts me in an inferior position to that individual. So what happens is, is even if you are able to demonstrate how that individual is wrong, people are good at doubling down because admitting faults, admitting they're wrong, Ooh, that's tough pill to swallow for people. So are you one of those people, Ben? Like I've heard individuals like Joe Rogan. He says like, I never view the comments. Like I never go and read anything on social media. Um, he's like, that's just the way I protect myself. And I've heard that from, you know, some other people as, as well. And then you've hear, here's like the other people who are like, no, I respond to everybody. I just want to be an open book. Where do you, where do you fall on that end of the spectrum? And what have you found to be kind of beneficial for protecting like your mental well being? Like, when you're in a very controversial space, uh, what does that look like for you? I really appreciate you asking that because I think it's very important because um, everybody experiences it at some point on social media, especially when you start publishing information and opinions. So I respond to comments where I see an opportunity for useful discussion or for me to expand upon the topic that I was discussing in the video, where there's something I left out because of a time limit and someone asked the question, I'm like, perfect. Here's where I can put it. But I never respond to negative comments. And mm. I I take a maybe a unique approach to it. I don't think it's that unique. But if someone leaves a negative comment on my post, I don't block them. A lot of people will block immediately. I don't block them because to me, that just sort of enrages them to maybe get more upset and continue doing it through other means. Um, and I just leave it. And I have people who there are certain people who follow me and reliably on almost all my posts, they leave long, nasty comments. And I just, I just let it be because, and I don't, and the thing is, I don't let it get to me. You know, I don't, I don't engage psychologically or physically with my thumbs. Um, yeah. So I just kind of let it be. And, and I, you know, that's what I've found is like I said, people will disagree with you everywhere you go in person. They may not voice it, on social media, they will. That doesn't mean that they're attacking you. That doesn't mean that they, sure. you know, want to hurt you. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone's entitled to theirs. And I'm not going to let other people's opinions on the internet affect me. Um, what does affect me, though, is when I post something and someone questions whether the information that I'm sharing is accurate or not. Because to me, it's really important that everything I share is completely accurate. So that that will affect me because I'll immediately, like, I'll be at the lab doing something. And I posted a video that morning and I'm running an experiment and I'm walking, you know, upstairs and I, and I am in the hallway and I see the comment and I'm like, oh, no. And I'll go to my computer and I'll start researching. I'm like, did I get that wrong? Did I get that wrong? Like, please no. Right. And so it'll affect me because it'll actually interfere with my day and it'll interfere with sure, my, yeah, my yeah. well-being briefly. Um, but going back to this debunking topic, I want to bring something up because it's very timely. This paper um, just came out. Let me see where did I just put it. I had it on my desktop. Okay. Paper just came out called how effective are TikTok misinformation debunking videos? It's peer-reviewed. It's in the Harvard Kennedy School Misinformation Review is the journal. First author is Bhargava, B-H-A-R-G-A-V-A. 
um, they looked at, they basically, they took almost 1200 people on survey uh, on the internet and they gave them one of three conditions. They basically had them either watch a, a conspiracy video where it was saying something false, um, a conspiracy video, and then a debunking video or just a debunking video. And they basically mm-hmm. found that people were shown debunking videos became, uh, and I haven't read it in great detail, so I hope I'm not misinform- misrepresenting this, but it, it seems like they found that people became more effective at identifying and discerning between true and false information on social media after seeing these debunking videos. And what's really cool about this is that they actually used one of my videos as the debunking nice. video for this paper. So I was stoked and I, and I didn't even know. And someone mentioned me on Twitter, uh, Steve Rathjay, I think that's how you pronounce his name, psychology researcher. He mentioned me and was like, oh, I see they used my videos and Dr. Inna Konevsky. Um, she's a psychology professor in San Diego. And I, awesome. it's just really cool. It's really cool to know, to feel that because I do it because it feels like it's important. And to have now scientific evidence that I can point to that say, look, it actually does something uh, feels yes. really good. And especially as a scientist, that's important to me. So yeah, no, that's, that's great about man. doing it. It works. Yes. It, you know, it moves, it moves the needle. The, the great thing, Ben, is that you have both the academic credibility, um, you know, and the credentials that when people hear you speak, just like when they hear some other people that are really academically credentialed, um, like well uh, versed, but also have the degrees and pedigree like you do, like it holds a lot of weight. And the study is showing you it holds a lot of weight, like what you say and how you help with the debunking process. Like it gets people thinking in a different way. And it's because they have a level of inherent trust in what you're saying. And that is worth its weight in gold. Um, so no, man, that's a, that's awesome research to hear. And that's really cool that they used your video for that. Uh, because I mean, yeah, it, it should be kind of one of those things for you at least that I imagine. So uh, it's like, yeah, what I'm doing is worth my time. Like I'm not just kind of doing this you know, just to do it. Like it's actually helping kind of make this world a better place. Like that's the way I see it at least. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool, my man. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. The uh, the one thing I wanted to mention before I kind of switch back um, uh, to some different topics, still on the debunking side, there is a video that I watched uh, I, that you posted. It, it is one of the most hilarious TikTok videos I've ever seen, at least for me as an academic. I was laughing my head off at it when you posted it a while back, but people should look at it. And it was talking about it was this one TikToker who was actually trying to um, maybe like dispel you as a myth buster uh, because he was like look at this guy he calls himself a doctor but if you look at his degree he has a doctor of philosophy and then basically kind of goes on to like what like what does a doctor of philosophy like know about neuroscience and the brain which i thought was hilarious and if anybody doesn't know what a phd is it is a doctor of philosophy and then you specialize in your degree which is in neuroscience but i i thought it was really really funny did you ever get to talk to that guy or like is there been any communication like did do you think he understands what a phd is now (laughs) uh i think he does i never spoke with him directly but what's funny is that he posted that i made the response video which i also i appreciate that you think it's funny looking back on it i probably wouldn't have made it now it was pretty aggressive coming at the guy (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah he what happened was after that and, and so this is why i don't like engaging in conflict my followers on tiktok started going and commenting on his videos and being like, you're an idiot, you know, and saying all these mean things. And I'm just like, come on. And, you know, again, looking back on it, I was maybe a little bit more aggressive than I should have been. Probably they 
fed off my energy and we're like, yeah, screw this guy. Let's get him. Right. Um, right. So, but what's funny is he started making all these videos after that. And I was kind of paying attention for a little while where he was just, I forget exactly what the content was, but it was just like, he just like started becoming like trying to become an influencer, like taking the people who were attacking him and like trying to get them as fans for his. And he would just kept doing like kind of poorly informed things. And I don't know. It was funny. Um, oh goodness. He was a good sport. He was a really good sport about it. Well, that's good. That's good. Okay. Yeah. That was funny. I just wanted to mention that one. Cause I just thought it was hilarious back when I saw that I was like, it was just one of those ones where it's like, Oh goodness. Just someone who made a TikTok video thinking, Oh, I'll, I'll get this guy. And it's like, Ooh, I think you Got ran him. yourself right into a corner there. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. And, and also just, just to add, uh, for anyone listening, when you do a PhD in neuroscience, there's an absolutely zero philosophy uh, study involved. You know, you don't actually take any philosophy and any PhD in PhD in biology, physics, chemistry. There's no philosophy involved. It's just a sort of antiquated name for a, a degree. So that's right. No, thanks for the clarification. Let's talk now, Ben, about the intersection between mental health and neuroscience. And one area of uh, expertise for yours and also research area is the the role of empathy. And I think that it's one that probably doesn't get talked about nearly as much as it should. It hasn't kind of made its way into the modern uh, limelight, if you will. So I think maybe a good place to start here is talking about and explaining what is this concept that is empathy. So when we think about empathy, what does that even mean conceptually? And then what is neuroscience telling us about the neurological or neural basis for empathy? Yeah, empathy is such an interesting topic. I kind of fell into it on accident, um, like everything in my life, apparently. Um, but I I love it because it transcends this boundary between the self and other and kind of combines them. So empathy by definition is the ability um, and the practice of identifying someone else's emotional or physical state, you know, kind of what sort of condition they're in and kind of like adopting that same state yourself. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know about you, but for me, I have a really strong connection. If you have a strong connection with anyone in your life, do you ever feel this where you see someone you really care about crying? And it's, you almost have to fight back the tears yourself. Like for that, I had that with yeah. my mom or my wife. Oh, yeah. It's like, if I see these people cry, I'm just like, immediately my, my tears are just start like coming out. I'm like, yeah, whoa, it's like immediate. And that's a really great example for me of empathy of just like, you're, you're taking on this state. Um, but this can really be, uh, you know, this can express in a lot of ways, you know, you're walking by, um, you know, a homeless person on the road and, and you could just feel their distress you know it's just you just kind of take on this like discomfort and or you see someone get you know hurt a, a physical injury um that really that like when you experience that discomfort that you share that discomfort with them that is empathy one step above that on this kind of like hierarchy of how much you think and care for someone else would be compassion where then you actually go and help them so if you walk by the homeless person you feel for them you know you feel for their situation um, but you keep on walking, you don't do anything. That's empathy. You stop, you give them a c- couple bucks. That's compassion. So that helping someone in a position of need is compassion. So as far as the, the brain systems involved in empathy, um, I'll, I'll focus on empathy for pain. So the, the idea of seeing someone else get hurt, 
it's really interesting because there's a, there's a lot to discuss here. But when you see someone in pain, it actually activates many of the same brain areas that are activated by experiencing pain itself. And a couple of those brain areas um, are the anterior cingulate cortex and the insular cortex. And so basically what's been found is that those two brain areas are activated by both observing and experiencing pain. And so this kind of lends uh, credence to the, to the idea that there might be sort of this shared experience. Like when you walk by someone and you feel discomfort, it's actually because the brain is in a sense, modeling the experience that it's observing, you know? And so you're modeling that experience of pain, you're modeling that experience of discomfort and you're like putting yourself in their shoes while your brain is actually putting itself in their brain's shoes, you know, and, and taking on some of that same activity, which can feel like discomfort. Is it been, is there a, is there a role that mirror neurons are playing in that process or is that disconnected? There certainly might be. Um, there probably is. I, I think as far as I know, I'm not sure how much study has been done looking at mirror neurons in these particular brain areas. I think most of the mirror neuron stuff is in like motor cortex and stuff like that. And, and sure. like physical movements, you know, like I stick my arm out and there's neurons in your motor cortex that are activated in the same way. Um, but then we get into another discussion of like, is that empathy? Like, eh, <laughs> maybe not. Right, um, right. Yes. But yeah, there's, there's certainly, I mean, if they're not mirror neurons exactly, they are neurons that look and act like mirror neurons, you know, that are, that are activated by the same type of experience for sure. Right. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting kind of the way that you put, I loved your definition of empathy, by the way. Uh, And one of the things that I think about, you know, as a psychologist, you know, one of the things that we are taught is, you know, how to express empathy um, and how that can manifest in developing a strong therapeutic alliance and rapport with people, uh, because people need to know that you genuinely understand as much as you can understand and how you can relate it to your own personal experiences or at least associate it. Because obviously, I'm never going to know fully what that individual is experiencing because I am not that individual living out their life, understanding kind of their language processing and how they interact with kind of that experience and what's going on. But I can relate and associate that to my own experiences. And that's kind of really been one of my kind of key drivers as to how I conceptualize and understand empathy is this idea of, while I may not know 100% of what you're experiencing, I have these events in life that are well encoded in my brain that I can come to and I can relate to. And it's interesting that you put kind of this notion of like, you know, you see someone who like you're really close to, who you have an intimate relationship with, showing or expressing pain or suffering or an emotion. And then all of a sudden, like you start to feel it to understand kind of how the brain is interpreting that and how the brain, uh, how that manifests kind of in our emotional experience. I think it's always been fascinating to me. So I think like the one thing that I'm curious about is like, we know that there are these uh, neural bases for empathy, but I know that there are some people who are like, I want to like enhance how I empathize. Like I just want to be someone who can be more of an empathizer. And I'm not talking about, you know, someone who's kind of starting at more of like on the opposite side of the spectrum. And we may you know talk about in terms of psychopathy or sociopathy. Uh, I'm talking about more of kind of like the everyday individual um, who's like, I, I have a level of, 
empathic understanding, but I would really love to kind of enhance those mechanisms that kind of relate to empathic behavior. Has your lab um, and the stuff that you've done in far, as far as studies kind of found some answers to that? Like how can we increase empathy, um, you know, via any type of uh, changes in brain circuitry or whatever the, that may look like? I'm, I'm curious what you guys have found there. Yeah, so I'm working on this project right now that's not published yet and it is in mice. Um, but essentially, I can give you the the broad strokes. Um, please, nobody scoop me. Uh, <laughs> scoop my research and publish it. I mean, right. so basically, in, in human beings, there are certain drugs that are known as empathogens, and these are drugs that enhance empathy. Uh, the most notable of them is MDMA or ecstasy, and it's been shown to induce these strong feelings of of connection and and empathy for an, another person. So what we're doing in, in my, what I'm doing in my project is um, using MDMA to enhance empathy in mice, which believe it or not, it actually does. And then studying like what are the brain systems that MDMA is sort of, you know, plucking like the strings of a guitar and, and by like using MDMA to kind of pull those strings up, it gives us a chance to like, look at, okay, what are those circuits? What are those systems in the brain? And um, what we're finding is nothing that's could be like a druggable target yet. Um, mm-hmm. We're getting there, but there's also a bigger question of like, if it, if there were a druggable target, would we even want to generate a pill that you could take that would increase your empathy? What would be the dark side of taking, let's say, an exogenous medication, or we'll call it a psychedelic or whatever compound? Uh, what would be the dark side of doing that to increase empathy? Like, why would we say maybe there's an ethical barrier there that we can't cross? I'm curious as to kind of the line of thinking that you all have had. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think there necessarily is a dark side. Um, It's more of just like thinking about the practicality of this and putting it into use in society, because I would imagine that those who would benefit the most from something like that are those with low empathy. And probably because they have low empathy, those people are not inclined to pursue something like that, you know, and it would be like, how would they know? Oh, I, you know, I don't, I want to get more empathy. And I feel like people who are already pretty empathic, who can have a capacity for understanding empathy are the ones who would seek it. And they're not the ones who would, who would require it or who would want it or could benefit from it. And so then there becomes this ethical dilemma of like, would your psychiatrist prescribe you empathy pills? If you, you know, it's like you would go to your psychiatrist and you're like, oh, I just, I hate this person in my life. They're driving me nuts. I can't stand them. I think they're worthless. <laughs> and your psychiatrist is like, here are some pills to enhance your empathy for this person. You know, maybe, maybe there could be a, uh, some sort of psychedelic like model where you, you take the pill 30 minutes before you see your psychiatrist and then you sit and you talk through and you explore these feelings that you have. For someone and and you open yourself to the idea of appreciating their perspective, you know, could be like that. Or maybe it could be like, you know, you, you're, you're in a huge fight with your sibling. Well, okay, how about you both just take this and you sit down and you talk for an hour, you know, or sure, it could sure. be completely, it could be required for all political d- debates in, in America. <laughs> uh, to like, <laughs> now, like now, truly, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. That's it's like, well, but that, that's, that's the idea. It's like, you know, let's get people to, to step aside from these kind of like preconceived notions of like other and, and really like engage with one another's ideas in a way that allows them to actually embrace people's perspectives and, and not attribute it to like them being different from me. But it's like, is that practical? You know? 
Yeah. Well, the one thing that really comes to mind here, Ben, for me is I think about this notion of psychological flexibility versus psychological rigidity. And a lot of individuals who are experiencing a lot of relationship tension is because they are very psychologically rigid. Um, they're not very accepting of what's going on. They can't see kind of the perspective of the, uh, of the other person. It tends to be very um, intrinsically motivated, like 100%. It's like me, me, me kind of centered. And the problem with that is that there isn't a level of flexibility and openness to other people's experience. It's almost kind of like, uh, you know, it's like this personal fable. It's like only I am going through this and only I can understand like what I'm going through. Whereas is there a potential for an intervention to increase something like psychological flexibility with someone who's a little bit more rigid through some of these, let's say, exogenous compounds? And the really interesting research that's coming out of, you know, maps and what we're seeing kind of with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that a lot of these people who have a lot more of the uh, lack of psychological flexibility are gaining flexibility through this processing um, and utilizing an exogenous compound, uh, whether it be uh, something like MDMA, psilocybin, um, you know, other compounds. And it, we're seeing a lot of great efficacy there for people with you know PTSD, depression, you know, tre especially treatment resistant depression anxiety. It's a fascinating field that, you know, I think we have a long ways to go in the research, but the research appears to be very, very promising. So I think that there is, you know, something to this idea of how can we use um, uh, these compounds as a mechanism to enhance psychological flexibility. And one component of that is being empathic and learning to connect with people on a very empathic level. Yeah, absolutely. Very great point And well said, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is like in my study, we're using MDMA to identify the specific, like highly specific neural mechanisms of empathy, um, or at least the mechanisms through which MDMA enhances empathy. But the question I'm thinking of is, is it really useful to extract that particular facet of MDMA's pharmacological action when the entirety of taking MDMA is already so robust and powerful um, that it you know, induces maybe even more robust feelings of, of empathy than a single like drug like that would. But who knows? I guess we can't know until we try it, until it exists. Yeah, yeah. Also, the problem with MDMA is that um, it's very it's very similar to methamphetamine. And so it has all this dopaminergic activity and it can, you know, you, people grind their teeth and stuff. And it, it can be, you know, there could be heart issues related with it. Um, and I'll give you this teaser. What we found is what I've found so far in my research is that the empathic, the empathogenic properties are more are almost exclusively related to serotonin activity rather than dopamine. So it could be useful to extract that serotonergic action um, and reduce some of the more, you know, the addictive liability that comes with stimulating the dopamine system. Uh, and maybe some of those other kind of arousing features, you know, physiologically arousing, like, you know, increased heart rate, increased type teeth grinding, things like that. So there could be a route um, yeah. for enhancing social connection in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah, I, I think it's it's very interesting for me because a lot of times when I think about this from the lens of a psychologist, 
I always want to think about how, how do we ensure that we're not replacing, you know, maybe one quote unquote addiction with another? How do we make sure that people are not using a, a compound as a mechanism of active avoidance, right? Uh, but we kind of mask it in terms of like, this is going to be helpful, or this is kind of like uh, something that's going to benefit me. And, you know, I'm always weighing that because any, anything could become that, right? We could use exercise as a mechanism of active avoidance. We can use food as a mechanism of active avoidance, you know, sex, porn, like all of it, like any of that can be a form of active avoidance if we're not truly kind of doing, doing the work. Um, it's just like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of escaping, if, if you will. And sometimes I've seen it, um, and this is probably less in the world of academic research on psychedelics, but more of just kind of like the modern day pop use of psychedelics is that a lot of people are just kind of using this as, as an escape. And they're just kind of like, this is my way of kind of uh, saying I'm going to journey, but I'm really just kind of using it as another way to, to actively avoid. Do you feel like kind of in what we're doing now, kind of on the front of science uh, that we're putting in maybe like stop gaps in order to halt that uh, kind of, addictive nature of this, or at least not addictive nature, we'll say more of the the propensity that people can have to kind of just use it as a way to escape and avoid mm -hmm. like, well, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this back up. Because I was gonna I was gonna when we started talking about MDMA, I was gonna point all the way back to when you were saying before about this, like positive psychology and this kind of like escapism, um, and avoidance. So the, the interesting thing about M I'll talk about specifically about MDMA. And for the audience, it's very important to be aware that MDMA and ketamine and psilocybin, those three drugs, they all have completely different mechanisms of action. So I'm just talking about MDMA here. MDMA, by creating these feelings of euphoria and, and great comfort, um, it really, it can allow people in the right situation, the right setting. Ideally, the setting being you sitting in a comfortable, safe place with a therapist that you know and trust. Uh, in that setting, it can make people very comfortable becoming open to and addressing and really exploring painful, deep thoughts and memories and, and, you know, schemas. And so the, the idea with using for the idea for using MDMA for the treatment of PTSD is exactly that, that it can allow people to, you know, embrace and really touch and think about these ideas that have maybe been kind of buried in their mind for however long it could be decades, you know, if mm -hmm. someone had experienced sexual trauma as a child, you know, and, and these, they've suppressed these memories and every time they kind of think about it, it becomes painful and they avoid it. You know, MDMA can allow someone to become open to that and really explore it for the first time, which can have potentially a really serious positive impact on their long-term mm -hmm. mental health. And so I, I really like MDMA for that reason, because it's the exact opposite of what you said of that sort of escapism. But with that said, there are other drugs that um, are more geared toward escapism, namely ketamine, which is a dissociative agent, you know, and uh, not that it's necessarily doing that, that it's enabling people to just avoid or escape their problems. I mean, ideally, ketamine should be used at sub anesthetic doses, so they're not actually being anesthetized. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny to think about, you know, we're dealing with such a, a new type of sort of journey in mental health, you know, it's unlike yeah. anything else. And I think it's really, and, and 
actually, I'm trying to think if this is just my opinion or if this is known in the field. I'll, for now, I'll say it's my opinion that it's very critical, absolutely critical, that the experience is paired with the with psychotherapy and that you are mm. in the presence of a therapist, that you're doing talk therapy. Because the idea of like right now, we know that and, you know, uh, building in anyone's arguments that SSRIs are not effective, but SSRIs uh, outcompete placebo in terms of improving mental health. So there's that. So SSRIs are this much effective. Talk therapy alone is this much effective. When you combine the two, they're more effective. That you have a sort of synergistic effect of therapy and SSRIs, and right. I think that's important because you know maybe there's maybe serotonin uh, SSRIs are driving serotonin signaling, and that's driving plasticity, and that's driving you know therapy induced plasticity. It's allowing a little bit of flexibility in your mind and your brain for you to use the therapy more effectively. And you know it's like I like to describe SSRIs as like the pre-workout or the protein and the yeah. therapy is going to the gym. You know, you, you when you use both together, it's most effective. Now, for anyone who doesn't like SSRIs, let's put that behind us. Forget about SSRIs. Now let's talk about <laughs> psychedelics. It's the same kind of thing. You can take psychedelics at home. You might have a good experience. You might have a terrifying experience. You know, anything uh, can happen. Yep. <laughs> so let's put you in a therapist's office. Let's have you meet with this person beforehand, develop a, a relationship built on trust, and then allow you to really explore um, your mind and your thoughts in ways that you have not been able to do historically. So I think that's really the model. And I think it's really, really important to factor that in. Uh, I, I could not agree more, you know, an effort to not be too much of an echo chamber. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it, I'll keep it quick, but I do want to just say, I fully agree with that. I think that the research that we're seeing right now, you know, coming out of maps on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, uh, it, it is, it, it's just insanely exciting. Uh, it is one of those ones where I feel so privileged and honored, um, to be, you know, in this field at this time. Um, and, and, and I cannot wait to see what, what, what happens. And, you know, the, the, the biggest fear that I have is that, you know, the funding will all be pulled and, and, and then everything gets shut down. I think that's the, always the fear that goes on, but I think that there's enough motivation and drive. And we see a lot of people, um, especially from on the scientific philanthropy side of things who are like, yeah, I, I, I see kind of how, great this can actually be and how effective it can be. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be a, a, you know, a part of this journey too and, and hearing more and learning more. Um, so I'm thankful for you know, your lab and other labs that are looking into kind of how can we progress the field of mental health because we're in a bad spot from a mental health perspective. Like people are struggling um, really, really bad. And we're finding that a lot of the conventional traditional therapy Therapeutics um, can be somewhat effective, but they're not nearly as effective as what we want them to be. And I think that we just have to find like, what is that really high potent elixir, um, which I think it's a combination of, you know, the therapeutic side of things in terms of uh, exogenous compounds or psychedelics can be helpful, but there are other things as well, um, other pharmacological mechanisms, but also how can we combine that with these other types of therapies and behavioral change and lifestyle change? I think we're moving in a great direction and I'm excited for it. You know, I just, the last thing that I want is for funding to be pulled or for, uh, things to be taken over into a, a like, oh, hey, this is just kind of like a have fun, do drugs type thing. And which I think you're saying like, you know, you're an advocate of now, like this needs to be paired with 
a professional, you know, medical, psychological professional who it's not just take a drug and kind of like dissociate, be out of there and come back and everything's all taken care of. It's like, no, nah, it takes processing. I mean, the brain is complex. Psychology is complex. And it's not just going to be magically healed by, you know, you kind of dissociating with a drug. Um, at least we don't have really evidence of saying that that's kind of the the magical thing. It's just dissociate and then you're good to go. It's now there's the processing part is really important. The relationship part is really important. So I appreciate kind of you mentioning that. I said I was going to keep it short, but I ended up going <laughs> on a little <laughs> bit of a diatribe there. Uh, it's it all valuable. It happens. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it, man. Um, you know, I know we're getting uh, a little bit over an hour here. So I want to kind of wrap us up here today, Ben. It's been fascinating to hear from you. The one question that I'm very excited to ask here is is being a little bit more future oriented, but it's asking you like, what are you most excited about in terms of like the advancements, the direction that you're seeing in the field of of neuroscience? Like, what's what's for you? And it may be kind of what we've already talked about, but I'm just curious if there's anything kind of like novel that maybe people don't know as much about that you're like, yeah, I think this is going to be a game changer in the field of neuroscience. Any, anything there? Um. Yeah, I think that I, there's a lot of ways I could answer this. I'll pick one. So it's not necessarily like on the cusp of like becoming a thing. It's already kind of a thing. But I really think that like targeted region specific brain stimulation is a very valuable and critical thing. Um, let's talk about SSRIs for a second. I mean, if you take an SSRI, like the the conventional go to treatment for someone who's suffering from depression, you give them an SSRI. There are going to be some changes in the brain that occur for the person who benefits from SSRI that are useful and that are producing an antidepressant effect. But there's also going to be a bunch of stuff that happens in the brain and in the body that's not useful because it's you're just increasing serotonin signaling broadly, systemically throughout the entire brain and body. And so and you can think about this in any way, you know, not just SSRIs. Let's talk about like benzodiazepines. Let's pick any uh, drug, Adderall. You know, there are going to be off-target effects because what we basically know is that if you target, um, you know, dopamine signaling or GABA signaling or serotonin signaling, whatever for those drugs, it improves some output, some behavioral output, some measurement of mood or of, of cognitive function, um, attention, focus, but it's also going to be doing a lot of other stuff. We know that the system's important, but we don't, but we don't know what else is happening. Um, mm -hmm. And so what off-target effects could be happening. So the idea is with these targeted stimulation protocols or paradigms is that if you can identify, you know, where in the brain is that neurotransmitter system preferentially acting to drive the effect that you're seeing, whether it's antidepressant effect or anti-anxiolytic, um, whatever it is, can we just forget about all those off-target effects and just do to that brain area what we want that drug to be doing and then forget about all the off-target effects? And so I, I could see it becoming really much more um, common and and effective. And uh, I don't know, I, I it's not really, doesn't seem to be like exploding at all, but there are definitely a lot of good studies out there showing that things like transcranial direct current stimulation or um, magnetic stimulation. Um, there's there's a lot of of promise there, and I just feel like if we can get to a point where there are like 
I'm thinking really futuristic now, at home wearables where you can do these yeah. things. And, you know, instead of taking an SSRI, you can sit down and just do a, a meditation and put on your transcranial direct current simulation helmet and, you know, stimulate your left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And, and then, you know, it's, it's directly treating uh, the systems that are driving these, these depressive symptoms without doing anything else. I think that could be really powerful. That was one of many answers I could have given, but I like that one. I think uh, but cool. I, I like that one. I like that one too. I have, you know, many friends um, who are in the neurofeedback space and, you know, one big thing for them is doing like quantitative EEGs, uh, looking at kind of uh, areas of the brain um, where we would see kind of, you know, expected level of, of, of um, oscillation as opposed to maybe over oscillation, under oscillation, and then using like transcranial direct stimulation to kind of affect change in those areas. And they've seen some really really great uh, movement um, for these individuals who have more like treatment resistant depression, um, high levels of anxiety, PTSD. Uh, it's really fascinating to me. Now, granted, that's not more of my space than like peripheral biofeedback and, you know, utilizing things like heart rate variability uh, as a biometric monitor. But I, I think it's a really interesting field that, yeah, not a lot of people, I'm not, I'm, to, to your point, I'm not sure why not a lot of individuals um, have caught on to it. I didn't know if maybe there just was maybe an underrepresentation of, you know, the research, if there wasn't a lot of funding in that area. It's super fascinating to me because uh, I think, it, well, to your point, instead of it, uh, it, it's targeted. And I think that that in and of itself is, is, is intriguing because if we're going into more of a state of doing, you know, so-called precision medicine, uh, precision medicine is all about being very specific. I mean, it's not kind of just treating, you know, one thing as a generalized, um, uh, or in a generalized manner, but being a lot more precise. So yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, are, do you know, are they doing, uh, any, any research at that at Stanford? I'm assuming they're probably doing some research on that. Yep. Um, yeah. Nolan Williams is, is who I was thinking of. Um, professor at Stanford studying this, also studying psychedelics and things like that. Uh, but yeah, he, he's really great. And, and uh, he's giving a talk in a couple months that I'm moderating. So I'm looking forward to that and hearing that talk. Awesome. So awesome. Yeah. But there's, but there's definitely a lot of research out there on this. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I love it. Well, before the uh, two more things before we close up shop, um, before I have you plug kind of where people can find you so they can follow you, you know, on TikTok, Instagram and stuff. I want to ask you a question about making these TikTok videos, uh, because I have heard kind of different reports on how long these things can take. Uh, but in general, how long does it take you like from start to finish to put these things together? Because there's a lot of like, you know, things kind of flashing in the background, you talking, cutting, editing, captions. Like, do you do it all yourself? Do you have a team that does it? Um, and then like, how long does that take you? I do everything myself. And, and I think I personally think it's quite evident from the poor production quality. Um, <laughs> but, um, what really takes the most time is putting together the message, you know, and first I have to, I have to choose what am I going to be talking about? Obviously, you know, I find a paper. This is interesting. Let's talk about this. I read the paper that could take any amount of time. Um, yeah. As I'm reading it, I might say, eh, you know, I'm not impressed by the power of these findings. You know, they didn't have a control group, whatever. I don't want to report this. There's there's a lot of lost time and stuff like that. But yeah, if I do like the paper um, or the I, the concept, then you know, it's okay. How am I going to package this? What? How? First off, how am I going to explain this complicated topic? I need to find some sort of analogy or some sort of format of presentation. Then I need to think. Yeah, that's kind of the first 
barrier is like, can I explain this? Am I capable of explaining this idea? Then there's this whole process of like, okay, you know, I've figured out how I'm going to explain it. I have like two sentences in my mind, but like, what about the rest? What's going to be the broader message here? You know, how am I going to, how am I going to sell this as a piece of information as education to an audience, you know? And so I think about the background and stuff. That's what really takes the longest is writing the script and perfecting the script. And usually what I'll do is I'll write the script and then I'll actually let, let it sit for a day or two and I'll come back to it and read it again. And I'll have a completely fresh perspective and I'll, I'll just see the mistakes that I would have made. Um, it's, it's actually pretty rare for me to like sit down, start making a video and have the video done that same day. So I'll usually sit down and like write a few scripts and then I'll have a separate day of like filming and editing all in all. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable. Each video could take three, four hours a piece. I mean, it's yeah. it, for, considering yeah. that it's a 60 second video, it's, it's repulsive. To, to think I, it's about. crazy, man. Well, I, I, I tell people that you don't like people just don't understand like a 60 second, you know, 90 second clip, like how much work has to go into that entire process. Just like people don't understand like how much work goes into producing a podcast. Like it's crazy. Um, it's very similar. I've heard someone uh, make a, uh, they said it's analogous to like writing a book, right? It's like the amount of time that you put into writing a book compared to how much money people generally make off of books. It's like, yeah, you, you worked for like pennies on the dollar for that thing. Um, it's great yeah. that you did it. I mean, you get the credibility and you know, it's all, it's all great in the end, but like it, the, as far as time goes, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's bonkers. So that's, uh, it's, a, it's helpful to know. Cause I, I was like, I figured it probably took a really long time, but people would never know it. Like it's it just, because they don't understand kind of everything that's behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like in order to explain, let's just say I'm presenting one single paper in order to explain it in 60 seconds, I need to know the thing in and out. You know, I need to know everything about it because I want to be sure that if I'm going to simplify an entire figure into one sentence, I want to make sure that I fully understand everything. I didn't miss anything. Um, And I mean, it takes so much time. It almost takes I would probably say that it takes just as much time to make one of these videos as it would for me to prepare an entire PowerPoint slide deck where I would present the paper at, for in a journal club format. I think That's it would take crazy. the exact same amount of time. It's in, and I'm leaving out so much information. And that's kind of part of the, the time consumption is I have to sit there and think, should I take that out? How can I frame this message and get this idea across while not mentioning that because it's going to take too much time but still not elite, like not forgetting about the nuance of that other piece. You know, how can I build that in without actually talking about it? And so those decisions take a lot of time, but I, I really enjoy it. I find it a, like a, a fun little puzzle. I love it, man. Well, you know, I enjoy it too. I want all of our audience to be able to follow you and watch your videos. Um, they're, they're, they're fascinating. They're potent. They're pithy. Like it's, it's, it's all good because everybody wants that short form content that just like gives them something to kind of walk away with their day. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think that you provide a lot of inherent scientific value in doing the work. So Ben plug kind of Thank where you. people can find you, your handle on, you know, at, at Instagram on TikTok, kind of, uh, you know, you know, plug your website. And also too, I know that you're the founder and president of the Aspiring Scientists Coalition as well. So yeah, if you tell us a little bit about how we can find you and learn more about kind of what you do there as well. Thank you. Yeah, I. if you're looking for me on social media, you should be able to look up Brain with an E. So B-R-E-I-N and it should pop up as Dr. Brain. Um, that's my social media. If you can find my website as well, 
where everything's on there. It's just my name, Ben Ryan, B-E-N-R-E-I-N.com. And you can even download my papers on there. I have resources for students, um, all sorts of stuff. So I highly recommend anyone who's listening, who's a student to check out the Aspiring Scientist Coalition. So I created this in 2020. Uh, and we're basically an international online organization that provides free resources uh, and support and networking to students in, interested in careers in science. And so I founded this on TikTok originally because I was getting a lot of questions from students. And I thought, you know, okay, I could sit here and I could answer everyone's questions individually, or I could get everyone into a group and allow everyone to answer each other's questions. And I can answer questions. We could bring scientists to answer questions. And so it was really all about asking things. So naturally, the abbreviation is ASC, Aspiring Scientist Coalition, ASC. Uh, but it's free to join. We have student members in more than 75 countries now. And um, yeah, it's always free. There's, there's no, there's no uh, secret charge coming or anything like that. We have online meetings and we bring scientists to talk about their experience and, and their journeys. So, and Jay, if you want to talk for our, our group, it'd be wonderful to have you. I love it, man. That'd be great. No, that's awesome. Yeah. You, you just say when and I'll be there. Awesome. So yeah, man. Um, dude, yeah, Ben, uh, thanks so much again for your time. Um, you know, really just very appreciative of, of, of what you do and how you're giving back to the community in this way. So, uh, again, thanks. Thanks so much for being on. Look forward to having you back here on the podcast as well in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking and I really appreciate your questions and, and your thoughtful comments. And, uh, it's been a really good conversation. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. This show would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us to reach others and share our knowledge and expertise on improving mental wellness. If you're interested in working with one of our therapists or using our platform, head on over to HanuHealth.com or reach out to us at info at Tune in next time and have a wonderful week.